Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaVariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. Today we're going to be talking about a topic that may seem a little bit unbelievable, but believe me, you will be convinced. By the time that we finish with Dr. Robert Glennon, uh, we're talking about America's water crisis. Yes, we have a water crisis in the United States of America. And in fact, Dr. Glennon is the author of a book I highly recommend. It's called Unquenchable, America's Water Crisis and What to Do About It. And we're going to be talking about a number of different issues. This is not something that is just uh, what you hear about the droughts in Texas, not just what you hear about in California and Arizona. In fact, his book walks us across the 50 states and talks about water issues all over the country. And so there's no one exempt from what we're going to be talking about today. Dr. Glennon, welcome to Go Green Radio. Well, thanks very much. It's good to be with you, Jill. Well, it's great to have you, and um, I I really did. I It's hard to say that I enjoyed your book because it's a little <laughs> bit, <laughs> but I appreciate it very much. It's very well-researched, very easy to digest, and um, what I like most about it is that it talks about some solutions that we can all get involved in, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But, you know, for a lot of Americans, I think that it's going to be difficult for them to get their heads around the fact that we do have a water crisis in America, even in in junior high, we were taught that our water system is kind of a closed loop. We can't destroy water. We can't create water. It's just there in our system. Um, help us understand how it is that we actually could run out of water. Well, that's a great question, Jill, because it really is a paradox. Um, yes, the hydrologic cycle teaches us that, that all the water there is, is. Uh, we can't make any more of it. Uh, we're still drinking the same water that the dinosaurs drank. Um, so how can we be running out of it? Well, I, I'd suggest three things. One, think about uh, one of your listeners in Los Angeles who flushes the toilet. Well, as much as six gallons of water goes over to the treatment plant, and then after treatment, it's unceremoniously dumped into the Pacific Ocean. So that's six gallons and the millions and millions of other gallons flushed away by Los Angelinos uh, is not available until the hydrologic cycle completes itself once again. And that could be scores or even hundreds of years before that water is available. The second thing I'd point to is... Uh, we pump a heck of a lot of groundwater in the United States. In fact, it's about a quarter of our national supply. And in the hydrologic cycle, it took Mother Nature thousands of years to fill up our aquifers. But we've been pumping that supply out in mere decades. So we're using groundwater in an incredibly unsustainable fashion. And the third thing, Jill, I'd note is just pollution. Um, whether it's uh, uh, industrial pollution or pollution through septic systems and sewage, what you see is that some of our supplies of water are rendered unfit for consumption. So that's compromising our supply. And the consequence of all three of these things is that all too often water is not where we need it, when we need it, in the amounts that we need. Mm-hmm. So it's a resource allocation and distribution issue as much as anything. Yes, it's not it so much that we're running out of water. We still have a big blue planet, but there's so little of it that we can actually use uh, for 
the things that we consume water for, whether it's agriculture or drinking, cooking, and we'll talk about this in a moment, but actually energy consumption is a big one too. Now, one right. of the I things, mean, the big sure, planet, of course, is mostly salt water, so our actual potable access of the water on Earth is only about 1%. Right. And, of course, we know that desalinization is possible, but not without sacrifices. It causes a a number of different issues, and we can talk about that in a moment. But one of the things I find so interesting, um, and one of the things I I honestly hadn't considered so much until I read your book and I read an article that you were recently quoted in, and that was how climate change is affecting our water supply or, more accurately, our lack thereof. Talk a bit about the the impact that climate change is having on our usable water supply. Sure. Well, um, the the scientists are still trying to put all the pieces together, but there seems to be consensus in the scientific community that the the earth is warming. Um, The reasons for it are are a little more debatable, but um, with the warming temperatures come different patterns of of weather and more extreme events. Um, Goodness, in 2011, we've seen uh, such horrible events in my home state of Massachusetts, a tornado, which is really quite unheard of. Uh, the drought in Texas, you mentioned, and on and on and on, floods and, and extreme storms. But what really happens for our water supply, particularly in the West, is that with warmer temperatures, there's a shorter snow season. That is, we get more rain, less snow, more runoff, and therefore more evaporation because it's not not on the, the mountains in the form of snow. So the scientists who tried to model this predict, for example, Jill, that the decline in flows in the Colorado River system over the next 30 or 40 years are likely to go down by 10 to 20 percent. And that's in a system that's already over-allocated. Now, there will be good news for water in some other parts. I mean, we're not going to make any more water, and the rising temperatures aren't destroying the water. Some places will see more flooding, but in other places, and the predictions are, especially for the southwest, it's going to be a lot hotter and drier. Well, and yet that seems to be where everybody wants to migrate, which is kind of unusual. Uh, Well, it is. I mean, the patterns nationwide, if you look at, and what our fellow citizens are are doing by voting with their feet is they're moving from places where there's a lot of water, like Michigan, to places where there's not much water. In the west, of course, California, Nevada, Arizona, but also in the southeast, states like Florida, Georgia, North Carolina are all facing water problems, and yet they're seeing booming populations. Now, I have to give our listeners full disclosure. Dr. Glennon lives in Arizona. In fact, he is a professor at the University of Arizona, professor of law and public policy, and I live in California. And I can almost see some of my listeners in the New England area now rolling their eyes saying, oh, no, here we go, another southwest whining session about how short they are on water in Arizona um, because they've golf courses or whatever. But the fact is you have a great deal of information on your book in your book about how the majority of watersheds, even in the New England area, suffer from unnaturally low stream flow levels. What has caused that problem in the Northeast? It really surprised me too, Jill. Uh, uh, Several things. One, uh, groundwater pumping, uh, excessive groundwater pumping. Uh, In many instances, the rivers are already fully spoken for, and the diversions from the rivers are creating their own problems. There's low flows. Uh, Low flows mean higher temperatures in the river. Higher temperatures are uh, usually result in fish kills. So the 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 rivers are are getting hammered simply by diversions, and then the the groundwater that's being pumped is being pumped in an unsustainable fashion, and groundwater is often connected to surface water. It's all part of a big cycle. And when you pump from a well, what you're very often doing is lowering the amount of water that's flowing into the river. So your your listeners might, might appreciate this riddle. Um, where does water in a river come from if it hasn't rained recently? And the answer to that riddle is it comes from the ground. 
because the river is always the low point in the basin, and the surrounding ground has water that's percolated down from rainstorms into the soil, and it continues to seek its its low ground, and that means moving toward and down and into the rivers. And if you pump the water out from the ground, then there's less water flowing into the rivers. So even in New England, uh, gosh, there's a river outside of... Um, of Boston, which is my hometown, the Ipswich River, and it's gone dry in five of the last eight years from groundwater pumping. And that's in a state that gets more rain than Seattle. And, you know, and this is something that we're even hearing about in international news. For instance, that uh, in India, one of the biggest problems that their agricultural community faces is that they're pumping so much groundwater out. There's just no way that nature could replenish that groundwater uh, quickly enough to sustain the rate of pumping for much longer. Um, That's absolutely true, and we could throw China in as well. And it gets very scary, Jill, because in the American West, quite a bit of water is going for non-food crops uh, like alfalfa um, or rather cotton. But, uh, but in China and India, it's mostly food production. And, and when you think about countries with their population having a water supply problem, what does that say about their capacity to grow food? Where are they going to turn for food? And, of course, there's a lot of water embedded in food. The U.S. is actually the largest exporter of water on Earth, not water molecules, but water that's contained in corn and soybeans and wheat and so on. Um, the, the, the globe is looking at a, a, a very serious problem of having enough water to grow enough food for 7 billion people. Wow. And, and, you know, you even mentioned um, in your book something that blew my mind as a former resident of Illinois, that even the Great Lakes don't have excess water. And I'd love for you to explain that phenomenon to our listeners, because that floored me. Yeah, that surprised me. Well, I lived in Illinois for a while, too. Uh, I taught at the University of Illinois one year, and I lived in oh, Michigan. Oh, Great Lakes. Alma mater, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Champaign-Urbana, yeah. Taught there for a year, and taught at Wayne State in Detroit. So I love the Great Lakes, and was back there a couple weeks ago in Erie, Pennsylvania. Well, the surprising fact is only 1% of the Great Lakes is actually renewable. I mean, they cannot take a, 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 a big... Um, uh, set of diversions, or they'll be in trouble. And yet there's a lot of demand for Great Lakes water because everyone looks and says, oh, look at that big body of water there. Surely you can give a little bit to us. Every once in a while you hear some wacky idea to build a pipeline down to New Mexico or Las Vegas. Uh, you know, really silly ideas in my estimation, but it's sure not any sillier than dragging icebergs to Africa, but <laughs> no, about the same. Both yeah. zany <laughs> ideas. Um, but one of the scary things about the Great Lakes is how low Lake Superior has been recently. I mean, it was at an uh, within an inch of uh, record lows just two or three years ago. It's a little bit above that now, but the result is that. Cargo ships can no longer carry full cargoes because Lake Superior is so low. And that results in offloading hundreds of tons of freight, and that's dramatically increasing the price of shipping. And I use that example, Jill, to to illustrate that water is, of course, essential to life, but water is also essential to the health of our economy. And we may fret in the United States about running out of oil, but water lubricates the American economy just as oil does. That is very true. Uh, This is a fascinating topic. I'm so glad you're with us, Dr. Glenn. And we've got so much more, but we've got to take a quick commercial break. So, folks, don't go away. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? 
Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Dr. Robert Glennon, Professor of Law and Public Policy at the University of Arizona and the author of a book I highly recommend. It's called Unquenchable, America's Water Crisis and What to Do About It. And it's really quite fascinating. All the things that that you might not think about that are, um, as Dr. Glennon mentioned in the last segment, lubricated, the pieces of our economy that are lubricated by water. A lot of us think that cheap oil and fossil fuels may be the uh, you know the key to our economy but water is absolutely critical to so many different industries manufacturing shipping many different industries but you know one of the things that you talked about in your book Dr. Glennon that surprised me again I wasn't aware of this outside of what I read in my own newspapers in California we're always squabbling over Colorado you know, river water but you describe interstate squabbles between states like Oklahoma, Texas, Georgia, Florida, and many more. Um, talk to us about some of those upstream, downstream conflicts around the country. That's really interesting. Well, I, I was surprised. Uh, most states are fighting with their sister states over water. Uh, we can leave out of that fight Alaska and Hawaii. <laughs> but, but, uh, and, and they have water problems, but there's just no sister state to squabble with. Uh, well, the, the, Flor- the Florida-Georgia fights over a, a big three-way river system, the Appalachicola-Chattahoochee-Flint, and Georgia wants water for the booming Atlanta metropolitan area, and Florida wants water to maintain the, uh, the oyster fishery in Appalachicola Bay, and they've been at loggerheads for, for 10 or more years. Uh, last year, North Carolina and South Carolina were embroiled in a lawsuit that was at the, was at the U.S. Supreme Court uh, over a, an interstate river between North and South Carolina. Uh, that one surprised me. Golly, you know, another story from the humid southeast, and yet there's not en- enough water to go around. Um, yes. Florida's had major problems internally with lakes drying up from too much groundwater pumping. Uh, Texas and Oklahoma are fighting over uh, another interstate river. Um, it's it's it, there's no part of the country that that isn't facing a crisis. This really is a national problem. It's not equally uh, critical in all regions, but it is a sure. It surely is a national problem, Jill. Well, and we hear a lot about another national problem quite a bit that most Americans may not realize how how intricate water is involved in the following issue. We hear a lot about energy independence, getting off of foreign oil. Um, and, and even in politics, we hear about this. And we hear about uh, the various options that we may have for domestic sources of energy, etc. But rarely, if ever, is there talk about the nexus between water and energy, particularly clean water and energy, and how much water it takes to produce energy and vice versa, how much energy it takes to deliver clean water. Take some time, if you would, to help our listeners understand this nexus. Well, you've stated it well. It's a two-way street. It takes a lot of water to produce energy. And conversely, it takes a lot of energy to move, pump, cleanse, and deliver water. In Unquenchable, I use ethanol as the poster child for this fairly surprising reality. 
And uh, now ethanol is controversial for a lot of reasons, but I, I don't have a dog in that fight. What, what I find stunning is how much water it takes to produce the ethanol. Uh, even in a modern refinery that re- recycles its water, it can take as much as four gallons of water to refine one gallon of ethanol. So a modest-sized 50-million-gallon plant requires 200 million gallons of water just to produce the ethanol. But that, Jill, turns out to be literally the drop in the bucket, because first you have to grow the corn. Now, if you're growing the corn in Illinois, that's not too bad, because you can mostly dry land farm. But when you start to get further west, western Nebraska, western Kansas, then you're going to have to irrigate. You're going to have to pump water out of the Ogallala Aquifer or further west, other aquifers. And um, and in the west, it can take as much as 2,500 gallons of water to grow enough corn to refine one gallon of ethanol. Oh, my stars. So now you start to do the zeros, and I don't know what what it is. The multiplication is, you know, just got a lot of zeros at the end for how much how much we need. And Congress, in its wisdom, decided that we should be producing 36 billion gallons of biofuels in the next 10 years, and a big chunk of that is going to come from ethanol. To give you a sense of, of one state and what this means, let's, let's look at California. Uh, California has a goal of producing 1 billion gallons of ethanol. For them to do that would require diverting every drop of water from the Sacramento-San Joaquin Bay Delta system, water that currently irrigates 7 million of the most productive ag acres in the country and provides the municipal supply for Southern California coastal cities. And it would require diverting all of that water into growing corn. It's absolute madness. The state can't possibly do it. And uh, and we just haven't been thinking very clearly about this. Um, the point I try to make is that U.S. energy policy has developed in utter disregard of the water implications of various energy choices. And well, one, and other it's, one, one other one, right if I may, Jill, that's, that's surprising that's, that's not in the book, but I've written a couple of articles last year about it and did an opinion piece in the Washington Post about it, is um, is solar energy. And now, you wouldn't think solar requires any water, and photovoltaic cells don't, uh, the ones you may see on your neighbor's roof. But with few exceptions, those are not commercially viable at utility scale. Mm-hmm. What the utility uh, customers want for large-scale energy production is what's called concentrating solar thermal. And what concentrating solar thermal does is to take the sun's heat to boil a medium, to create steam, to spin a turbine, to generate electricity. Just like a coal plant. That's right, and that's the whole point. It's just like an old-fashioned power plant that uses natural gas or oil or or nuclear. Uh, It's not uh, coal. Uh, It's not a... um, uh, it, it, It takes a lot of water in the cooling process. Mm-hmm. And the demand for energy is going up tremendously in the United States, and and that means more water. And, and some of this energy stuff comes from some very surprising sources. For example, I think your listeners would be surprised to learn that a major user of energy is Google. Yeah. And Google is therefore also a major user of water, because every time we do a Google search, when we press that key on, on the computer, what cranks up is what Google calls a server farm, basically a large concrete windowless building with uh, thousands of computers inside, and that's what does the search. But, of course, all of those computers are generating heat. If you just think about your single laptop and how warm it gets mm-hmm. and multiply it by 10,000 and you get the idea. So Google needs a lot of water to basically air condition or cool these server farms to keep them from overheating. So I think that's United- why we read recently that Facebook was going to be creating a server farm somewhere in the Nordic or something because it was almost like natural air conditioning. It was just cold cold temperature, you know, cold, right. cold climate there. When and that is surprising. At, when you look at where these server farms are, are, are being located, they're in industrial parks. They're nameless, faceless buildings. They could be a warehouse, but instead they're the personification of our uh, high-tech world. Uh, 
and they they take a lot of energy. I mean, it's about server farms use about two percent of all of the electricity in the United States. That's kind and of that, amazing. Yeah, and that figure is expected to go up. So, so the Department of Energy predicts that we're going to need 53% more electricity in the next 20 years. Well, where on earth is the water going to come from to generate all that power? And you're, you're really the first one I've heard talking about that. I, I read an article and I tweeted about it a couple of weeks ago where there are farmers in Texas who are protesting the uh, permitting of a new coal plant. And it's not because they're all that concerned about the pollution coming out of the plant. It's not that at all. They don't want to have to compete with that coal plant for clean water because the coal plant's going to need it in order to, like you said, they boil water and the steam moves a turbine, and that's what creates the electricity. Well, they can't do that with dirty water, and that same clean water that could be watering their crops in the middle of a drought will be going to the to the coal plant. And in fact, you mentioned in the book, I believe, that there have been several coal plants that have not been able to be permitted in other states because of this water issue. That's right. Coal plants and also two nuclear plants in Georgia, because mm-hmm. nuclear is the same thing. It's It's a thermal form of elect, uh, uh, power generation, coal plants uh, and, uh, and nuclear, natural gas, and also solar thermal. They all take a heck of a lot of water. Now, you can air cool them, but if your plant is a solar plant, where is it going to be located? It's going to be located in the middle of the desert. So, you know, you can't, that's not, you know, the, 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 the Facebook idea of putting the plant in the north makes a lot of sense. But if you're talking about a solar plant, it's going to be someplace where the sun shines all the time, and that's going to be pretty darn hot. Yeah, where there's not going to be an excess of of water to do that. You know, some people, it's amazing, you know, we we really don't treat water as valuable as, as it really is. I mean, there are some places in the world where women have to walk miles to carry a jug of water on their head back to their home every day, and... They, they, that water's precious, and we don't treat our water that way. And some people say, well, if we paid more for it, if the pricing were such that we treated it as a valuable you know, resource that it is, that would change Americans' minds and their behaviors. But oh, water, I, water I is so agree. precious. I mean, I just can't imagine doing that to some of the most poor and vulnerable in our society. What are your thoughts on water pricing? Oh, I think you're hitting the, the, the most important issue. Everything else is secondary compared to how we price water. I mean, the reality in the United States is we're spoiled. We wake up in the morning and we turn on our tap, and out comes as much safe drinking water as we want for less than we pay for cell phone service or for cable television. Most of us, when we think about water, we think of it as though it were the air, as though we're infinite and inexhaustible when for all practical purposes, it's very finite and very exhaustible. We in the States pay less for water than any other advanced society, save only Canada, which has a lot more water than we do in a much smaller population. In fact, in some places, Jill, people don't pay for water at all. In cities like Sacramento and Fresno, California, they've even fought the idea that there should be water meters on homes. So they don't, they don't pay anything for water. Wow. And in a third of American cities, when there is there is a water um, bill that people pay, um, the rates are structured so that they are decreasing block rates, meaning the more you you use, the less you pay for that final unit of water. Oh, well, it should be just the opposite. And and even when there are rates being charged, you, we're still not paying for the water. All we're paying for is the cost of service. Mm-hmm. The rates are set up to generate a revenue stream to be equal to the cost of the municipal water department or of the private company that's running the utility to uh, cover the cost of service, the cost of pumping the water, the energy, the the, pipe, the uh, treatment, the pipes and valves, and, and the, the workers and plumbers and so on to run the system. We're not paying anything for the water. We really, really need to get our hands around this. So what I've recommended and argue for is, first, let's protect people of modest means. Mm-hmm. Let's just recognize a human right to water. Right. If we in the United States, the richest country in the history of the world, can't make that commitment to our people, then we're a sorry lot. Right. But the truth is it's not a lot of water, Jill. It's only about 12 to 15 gallons per person per day. 
And when you multiply that out, it only comes to 1% of the water that we use in the United States. So let's just do that. Let's recognize a human right for basic needs, and then let's have increasing block rates so that we can treat this resource wisely. Seems so simple, doesn't it? And yet the political ramifications of trying to put something like that through would be unbelievable. We've got to have a quick commercial break. But when we come back, we'll talk much, much more about this with Dr. Robert Glennon, author of the great book, you've got to check it out, Unquenchable, America's Water Crisis and What to Do About It. Don't go away. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you're just joining us today, our guest is Robert Glennon. He is a professor of law and public policy at the University of Arizona. He's also the author of a book that I highly recommend you get your hands on. It's called Unquenchable, America's Water Crisis and What to Do About It. Now, if you're just joining us and you wish that you had heard the beginning of this great interview with Dr. Glennon, don't worry, because this same episode will air next Tuesday from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America's Green Living Channel. So if you go to voiceamerica.com and click on the Green Living Channel, you can find this episode replaying again next Tuesday between 9 and 10 a.m. Pacific. Well, Dr. Glennon, on page 39 of your book, you noted that even though the U.S. population went up, the total water consumption in the U.S. actually went down between 1980 and 2000. Part of that decline, however, was not just that everybody was conserving water in their household, but that we lost a lot of manufacturing jobs in the U.S. And, of course, we all know that's had a devastating impact on our employment rates in a lot of parts of the U.S., A lot of people are talking about the importance of reviving the manufacturing industry in the U.S. because that would be a great way to jumpstart the economy. But I have to ask, do you think the technology exists to resurrect manufacturing in the U.S., bring back those jobs, but still live within a reasonable budget of water? Well, I think it does. Uh, uh, We have a lot of competition out there. Partly it was the resource issue, but partly it was competition from China and other emerging countries that have have resulted in a lot of the manufacturing going overseas. But our manufacturers also used water far more efficiently at the end of the 20th century than they did in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, the steel industry, for example, um, achieved a 90% reduction in its water use for how much water it took to produce a, a ton of steel. Uh, in the high-tech sector, I, I talk in Unquenchable about Intel, which reduced its water use in making semiconductors by 70, 75% over 10 years. So there, are, there have been some tremendous success stories in the industrial and commercial sector in the United States. Uh, going forward, I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, as someone who lived in Detroit for a while, I'm awfully happy to see that 
the auto industry seems to be doing pretty well. You know, that bailout was very controversial, but you know, but uh, let's keep our fingers crossed on that front. Uh, the city of Milwaukee, Jill, is trying to make itself into a city that's got plenty of water, and it wants to be a, a really the hub of the water world with research centers and people who are concerned about water. But it's also trying to attract industries because it's able to say, look, it, if your industry needs water, come to Milwaukee because we've got it. It's not just for beer anymore. <laughs> no, not just for beer anymore. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of environmental issues that surround the bottled water industry, and we really can't talk about water without talking about bottled water. It's easy to criticize the industry, but on the other hand, there are some legitimate concerns about the safety of our water supply that people are reacting to. And in your book, you discuss the fact that fertilizers and pesticides and herbicides are showing up in our aquifers. Now, it's one thing for those chemicals to show up in streams as runoff from farmland. But in my mind, it's quite another for them to show up in our aquifers, which are way down deep. Would you please explain to our listeners the significance of that? Sure, and it's it's pretty depressing, actually. Well, um, the the farming community is far more efficient now than in at any time in history, and farmers are producing more bushels per acre than than the world has ever seen. And part of this revolution has come from pesticides and herbicides and different seeds that the that the Monsanto and Dow Chemical and so on are producing, uh, and those have been terrific uh, at one in one way but in another way they're very heavy chemicals and if applied excessively what happens is that the chemicals mix with rainwater and percolate into the ground and then leach further and further into the ground where eventually they hit the the aquifers and if you have a well that's pumping from that aquifer then you're going to be picking up the elements of the pesticides and herbicides and fertilizers that were applied by the farmer. And in rural areas, most people are living on their own domestic wells. And domestic wells are, unlike the large-scale commercial agricultural wells, the domestic wells tend to be fairly shallow um, and not they're not regulated. Um, for those of us who live in cities, the Safe Drinking Water Act requires cities to monitor for all kinds of things and to issue a report once a year to all the consumers telling them what the tests of the water have, have found out. But in rural America, where 45 million Americans get their water from exempt wells, these well these are unregulated wells. These wells are are, are shallow, and they, they may have contamination in them, and the families are literally drinking the water. They've poisoned themselves and are now drinking the water. It's, it's very disheartening. Well, and this isn't just a hypothetical situation. You discuss a study in your book where several wells in various locations were tested, and, and tell us about the results of that. Well, the results are high percentage of domestic wells with uh, with elements of atrazine and other uh, really nasty chemicals. So it's it's uh, you know, and additional chemicals come from from the pharmaceuticals that we that we consume in uh, you know, which have been life saving in many ways. I mean, think think of a world with, without antibiotics. Antibiotics have changed our lives, but. When we take antibiotics or hormone supplements or birth control pills or erectile dysfunction medicines or anything else, our bodies absorb some of it. We excrete the rest. We flush it away. But traditional wastewater treatment plants don't remove it. So they're still in the cycle. And these are very powerful chemicals, and and EPA really hasn't figured out what the maximum exposure for human uh, safety is for these various newfangled pharmaceutical drugs. And so we're really conducting a kind of collective experiment on ourselves with multiple chemicals depending on what what people in the community are taking for antibiotics or hormone supplements. Right. And I know we've had on Go Green Radio, we've had um, the American Association of Local Pharmacists on, and they have a, a national take-back program that they're offering to their 
customers for free, and I think we'll see more and more of that going on in pharmacies. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that the American public is beginning to wake up to this issue, but, you know, even some of the things that the American public thinks that we're doing to protect our water supply and protect our environment aren't necessarily doing the trick. I know that a lot of people have heard the message, you know, here's something you can do to go green. You can eat one less hamburger, eat a little less beef because the beef industry has, you know, this carbon footprint or this environmental footprint. But when you substitute poultry for beef, you might not be doing the environment a lot of favors. Talk to us about the implications to our water supply that the poultry industry has. Well, that's a surprising uh, development, too. Uh, the, the chicken industry has changed so much. Um, we now eat so much more chicken than ever, and the, the farms that are raising these, these chickens are really huge operations. Uh, by run by major major corporations, and you have tens of thousands of of chickens in one spot, and all of these chickens, of course, are producing manure. And when you cumulatively have have that many birds producing manure, you've got a, a real problem. So these facilities, which are known as confined animal feeding operations or CAFOs have to figure out some way to keep that manure from running off after rainstorms into our rivers. And sometimes they've done a pretty good job with it, but sometimes they haven't. And in any event, whether it's chicken or beef, one of the ways that that the farmers have raised these critters is by feeding them lots of antibiotics and hormones. Well, Again, just like human beings, their bodies only absorb about one quarter of the antibiotics and the hormones, and the rest is excreted into the manure. So now, not only is it bad enough that you've got manure, which can create problems with E. coli and other bacteria, but Mm -hmm. you've got these powerful chemicals in the form of antibiotics and hormones in the manure. And, And unfortunately, all too often, that has ended up in... In, um, in local rivers, uh, so much so that the state of Oklahoma has sued Arkansas for the, the Tyson poultry plant upstream in, in Arkansas for trying to for, uh, for polluting the river. Wow! But let you me know, just one... add one more fact sure. to that. To, to really, it's kind of gross at one level. But uh, a mature dairy cow produces 120 pounds of manure a day. Yikes! A day. That's so in the Central Valley of California, which has some huge dairy herds, they, they, the, the, the dairy cows produce 84,000 tons of manure a day. You can smell it if you drive the I-5. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, and that is that is a big problem. And I think one of the things, I know Pacific Gas and Electric is, you know, the utility out here, and they are looking at ways to create poop power, and we've had them on the show to talk about that as well. But it's, you know, it, it is a huge problem what to do with all of this manure to ensure that it doesn't end up in our in our waterways. And one of the things that I find kind of disheartening about water contamination is that sometimes it, it takes a really long time and a whole lot of money to clean it up. It's something that, you know, it's not like, oh, you just spill something on the floor and wipe it up. I mean, once these chemicals and other things get into our water supply, um, you know, it can be, it can be decades before it's eradicated, if ever. Uh, you know, with all of the, you know, we're in a presidential election cycle and we're hearing about everything, but safe drinking water. I think sometimes Americans think we've kind of moved on from that. Now we're all about iPads and Kindles, but you know, we still have to worry about things as basic as water. How do we put this on the front burner when there's so many other pieces of white noise out, you know, in, in mainstream media? Well, uh, I think shows like yours are doing it, and hopefully my book is doing it. Uh, the the American public are very responsive. They care deeply about their water supply. All the opinion polls show that they consider water the most important utility, and they indicate an in, a strong interest in having the water infrastructure maintained and, and repaired and upgraded as needed. Um, so getting the word out to our fellow citizens who, after all, are, are leading busy lives and, and we've come to take water for granted, it's, it's, it's a hard sell, but we have to do it. We just simply have to do it. You're absolutely right, Jill, about the, 
the, the new chemicals being much harder to get out. Uh, in the old days, if you had some bacteria, uh, a septic system that leaked or something else, it was pretty easy to treat. And even gasoline leaks were pretty easy to treat because gasoline floats on top of water, so you could skim it off and, and be pretty, you know, pretty confident that you'd taken care of the problem. But with these volatile organic compounds, PCE and some of the other nasty stuff out there, they produce what's called a denapple, which is a, a kind of liquid, and it's water-soluble. So when, it, when it's poured or dumped on the ground and it percolates down to the aquifer, rather than floating on top, it actually mixes with the water. Well, now you've got a real problem in, how, in trying to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. No easy process there. That's one of the scariest things, that we wouldn't have the technology necessarily to treat it, um, and then we've got to live with it. Or uh-huh. we have the technology, but, but here's, the, here's the, the kicker. But it's so expensive and it takes so much energy both to pump the water back out and then to run it through under high-pressure filters that you're using a ton of energy. And, of course, we now know that that energy takes water. <laughs> Boy, what a catch-22. It is. Well, we've, we've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, much more with Dr. Robert Glennon, author of Unquenchable, America's Water Crisis and What to Do About It. Don't go away. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Dr. Robert Glennon, uh, professor of law and public policy at the University of Arizona, and he's got a book out that I really encourage you to take a look at. You can get it at Amazon, uh, and I'm going to ask him where we can also maybe look at it on his website, but it's called Unquenchable, America's Water Crisis and What to Do About It. And it, though it is academic and there's research involved, it's very accessible, and I highly recommend and everybody having this on their shelf. Uh, Dr. Glennon, besides going to Amazon, where else can we get the book? Uh, oh, most bookstores. I'm a big fan of independent local bookstores, so if you've got an indie that you like, please patronize them. Uh, for more information on me and the book, uh, you can go to my website, which is www.rglennon, G-L-E-N-N-O-N, that's my last name, .com, rglennon.com. Great. You know, as we talk about the various contaminants and problems with our water supply, I can foresee many Americans responding to this issue of water contamination the same way that many Americans responded to the problems with their local public schools. Uh, They opt out. And that's a sad thing. Um, in the same way that we've seen some of the most affluent and influential Americans pull their kids into private school rather than fight the good fight within the public education system, I'm afraid we might be likely to see those who can afford it uh, go ahead and install expensive filtration systems in their homes rather than get involved with making the system better. What do you think will happen to our local municipal water supply if something like that happens, Robert? Oh, gosh, Jill, I think you framed the issue beautifully. 
and I, you know the answer. I mean, it will it will go downhill. That's you set it up, and you're absolutely right. And I think it would be terrible. I mean, we that, that's what that's what happens in third world countries. Uh, no one drinks the water. Everyone has big, you know, five or ten gallon jugs of water or bottled water. Or, uh, and uh, here in the United States, there's no reason to drink bottled water. Our, our municipal supply is every bit as good as bottled water. And of course, bottled water costs a thousand times more than the than the tap water. And I think, as an American, I'm particularly proud of the fact that we have universal access to water at incredibly cheap rates. I mean, what what a remarkable achievement for society to be able to do that. And it's happened by a tremendous willingness of state, local, and federal officials to put money into having a great water and wastewater system. Um, but that's under compromise. Our water now is still very safe and, 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 and secure, but the infrastructure that that delivers the water and the infrastructure that treats the water is in woeful need of upgrading. And despite all of the incentives and initiatives that the Obama administration has had on roads and bridges and the like, there's only been a pittance when it comes to water and wastewater. And with local governments in a state of frenzy about budgets that are out of control, uh, water and wastewater just isn't a high agenda item. It, I mean, what politician wants to run on the campaign for re-election saying, I overhauled your sewer system? <laughs> no, it's just it's not, it's not, not going not to happen. Uh, and yet I can't think of anything more important and more essential to us as a community than protecting this public supply. Well, and what a pity it would be for the number one economy in the world to, you know, have our grandchildren on our laps one of these days and, you know, they, they can't drink the water. And, and we're telling them stories about a time when we could drink out of the garden hose. I mean, that would be a, an incredible regression on the part of our society, I think. It doesn't have to happen, and we must not let it happen. But that takes community resolve and a commitment to keeping our water safe and secure. Well, and I think it also requires a little bit of, of civic engagement as well. I mean, you know, here in California, every couple of years we see people running for the water board, um, but I'm not sure that anybody even knows who they are or what their stance is or, you know, why they're a good or a bad choice for being on our local water boards. And I think um, in as much as we need to pay attention to our local mayors and school board candidates, water boards are pretty important too. <laughs> and we need to be involved in the process of supporting what they do when, for example, um, <clears throat> they propose to have a system of pipes for reusing our water. Which is a very sensible thing to do. We do it here in Tucson, and some other western cities are doing that. We don't drink the water that's come from the treatment system. What we do is we use it for golf courses and uh, highway medians. Uh, gosh, Google's starting to use some of it in its server farms. But it's also expensive because it requires a completely separate system of pipes and valves. So we as, we as citizens, as constituents of officials, have to be behind them. When, the, when they propose something that's going to be costly but sensible for our water and wastewater system, we need to have their backs because politicians are not going to get out in front on anything that's going to raise the price of water. I mean, it's it's the third rail of, of American politics to propose a, an increase in, in the rate of water. And yet, I have to tell you, Jill, nothing is more important. As I've been going around the country talking about this book, I meet inventors and engineers who have built, who have designed better water mousetraps, filtering systems, reuse systems, uh, low-flow systems, I mean, they have ways of how to conserve and use water wisely. And it is so sad for me to see these energetic young inventors with good ideas, and yet almost never do they have a viable business plan 
for bringing these things to market. And the reason is the price of water is too darn low. Mm-hmm. Very similar to what we see in the in the clean energy sector, uh, a lot of the same uh, complaints. You know that that they just can't compete with cheap oil, and yep. it makes it difficult to bring those things to market. Yes, um, it does. You know, in the in the few moments that we have left in the show, you know, a couple of minutes, I'd love for you to talk to our listeners um, about the three most important things that they could do right away this week or this month to help make a positive impact on the water situation in America. Okay, three in two minutes. Well, well you know what, okay, we might stretch one, a little, so take your time. <laughs> well, the first one is what I just said. It's to support, um, uh, the, to support the water and wastewater system by putting your money where your values are. We need, to, we need to put money into the system, and they need to be out in front of that. We all do. But then, what can individuals do? Well, I'll, I'll mention two things that I think are quite extraordinary. One, um, stop using your kitchen food disposal. Because a study in Tucson found that if you use your food disposal two minutes a day to get rid of your food scraps, by the end of the month, you've used 150 gallons of water. Holy smokes. And that's that's... That's food scraps. You can throw them in the trash or throw them in a compost post pile. So that's an easy way to save water is to stop using your food disposal. And the second thing for your listeners who want to save water is turn off the lights. Uh, There's a study um, that I mentioned in Unquenchable that calculated how much water it takes to produce electricity to run a single 60-watt incandescent bulb for 12 hours a day for a year. And, Jill, it astonishingly takes as much as 6,300 gallons of water to produce enough electricity for that one 60-watt bulb. Good grief. I don't think I've ever seen that calculation. I mean, outside of your book, that's amazing. Yeah. So the easy thing we can do is when you go out of a room in your house, turn off the light because you're not (laughs) only saving electricity, you're saving water. Wow. So simple. Now, you know, one of the things that I I can't let you go without asking you about, because there are so many of us that drink bottled water, maybe not every day, but every once in a while. But you mentioned that you stay away from bottled water that's spring water. And I want you to explain that really quickly before we have to go. Sure. Well, um, that was mostly the Nestle company in Perrier, and they had a marketing campaign that that assumed that we American consumers would find greater cachet and therefore pay more for spring water. But in order to label water as spring water, they have to pump from a well that's located right next to the spring. Well, if you pump five or 600 gallons of water a minute, every minute of every day in the year, you're just going to hammer the spring. The flows in the spring are going to drop. And spring flows are often the cold, clear water that we need for trout habitat and fish habitat downstream. So, so I, just, I just keep away from that campaign. There's lots of other methods of, of drinking water than having to drink, to, having to drink spring water. But Not I'd the like least of which is running around with your stainless steel canteen and filling it up in drinking fountains, right. too. I mean, there's a crisis out there, but I want to end on a, on a high note because I'm optimistic. A crisis is a time of opportunity. It's a time when there's still choices to be made. And I hope in Unquenchable I give a number of options of things we can do. We can keep the crisis from becoming a catastrophe. But now what we need, what we really need, is the moral courage and the political will to act. Mm-hmm. And I hope that we can find that. And I think that your book would set any politician up to feel empowered and enlightened enough to make the, the requisite case for doing just that. And I can't thank you enough for putting it together so well. Folks, you've got to get out there and get a hold of Dr. Glennon's book. I got it on Amazon. You can get it there, too. It's called Unquenchable, America's Water Crisis and What to Do About It. You can also visit his website at www.rglennon.com. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Glennon. It was a pleasure, Jill. Thank you.
Thank you. And folks, we'll be back same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a great week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and 